Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. How are you doing this week? I'm good. How are you? you good. Excited? I am. This is our first episode of the Pink Tax Podcast, and I'm so excited to dive in. Me too. So this week, I was thinking about talking about some common money myths that we face in society, as well as why money isn't talked about and the fact that it's a, a pretty taboo subject. Yeah, I think it's going to be great. I'm really excited to dive into that because it shouldn't be a taboo. Absolutely. And I find that when you ask people questions around money topics, so maybe what their cost of living is, maybe how much rent they pay or their mortgage payment, or even if you ask people what their salary is, they get quite squeamish maybe. I don't know. What's what's your experience been with that? Yeah. So like even I get nervous when people ask me because I'm not sure what their intentions are. So when you and I talk money, I know – we're on the same page. It's not going to be like one upmanship. It's not going to be like, oh, uh, well, you must have money to burn or not or trying to get something out of me. So I know I can be open and honest and that we're using these discussions to better ourselves in society and just share information. But yeah, it's, it's nerve wracking even for me still. And do you find that you've had people use that information, like when they asked you those questions, like in a negative way and used it to one up you or to judge you? Have you ever felt that? Um, I haven't felt judged, I suppose, but um, I don't care. That's, yeah, that's <laughs> I guess. fair. That's fair. Um, but it's, you know, because I'm married, because it's not just me, it's not just my personal finances anymore, it's also my husband's story. And I don't like to share other people's story without their permission. Um, So that's part of it for me. Um, I know that friends of mine and family members of mine have had that happen to them. Um, If people see their purchases or if they talk about their salary, they feel like, oh, you're bragging. Um, So I have had other people feel that way. Maybe it's just the way they're presenting it. I'm not presenting it in that way. I'm not sure. That's really interesting about the salaries and kind of that bragging notion, because I think talking about your salary is really important. And especially from the standpoint of creating equality between both men and women, it's important to share that information. So women are able to understand if they are being underpaid for the same job and they can, uh, you know, go and try to rectify that situation. So It is unfortunate, I think, that maybe people think that that's them bragging. Yeah. Yeah, because for me, anytime someone's shared their salary with me, a coworker, I'm like, oh, well, either you should be making more or I should be making more um, or we're on par. Yeah, it's never about like the other person making less. I don't think people should ever come at it from the standpoint of you want someone else to be worse off. It's you either want to level the playing ground or you need to figure out how you can, you know, ask for a raise or make more money. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that really ties in, especially 
to um, keeping up with the Joneses when you're when you're talking about bragging and you know being judged for certain purchases. I think in our society, everyone does kind of look at their neighbor or mm-hmm. everyone is looking at their coworkers' uh, purse or yeah, you know what outfit they're wearing and what brands they're wearing. And I think that that's also very very dangerous. It's super dangerous, and I think that's one of the biggest things that we and when I say we, I mean everyone as a whole, if you want to better yourself financially, step one is self-awareness. What's important to you? It's not what your neighbor has. It doesn't matter what your neighbor has. It doesn't matter what your coworker has. Um, You know, it matters what's important to you. And are you using your money to get what is important to you? Absolutely. And I think always wanting like the next, the nicest car or the next brand name item without realizing how much debt people are going into can also Mm -hmm. be incredibly eye-opening. I think if, and I I believe it was Gail Vaz-Oxlade who originally said this, but if everyone had to walk around with a t-shirt that had the number or the value of all of the debt that they had accumulated, I think we Mm -hmm. would start to treat people a little bit different. Yeah, if it, if you could see that, Let's say just, for example, a $600 purse was not a cash purchase for that person. Absolutely, They're yeah. paying 20% on that every month for the past six, nine months, a year. Yeah, and we might stop like uh, just wanting to, to purchase the next thing because everyone's being open with something that for so long has been completely invisible, right? You have no concept of who has what amount of money in their bank account and who has what level of debt just based on, you know, what car they drive or what they're wearing, it's impossible to be able to tell without actually viewing their financial statements. Exactly. So I think let's move on now to uh, some of the common money myths that we see in society. We've talked a little bit about how um, money is taboo and, you know, it's a bit crazy to me that we still aren't talking about money. But I think also some of that is people feel that they're not taught this in school. So they're kind of scared to bring up money issues because they think they should know it. And that in turn, I think leads to a lot of money myths. So I've done a little bit of research here for this episode. I've come up with four money myths that I think um, people should be aware of. And I'm hoping that we can bust all of these myths in the next uh, little bit here in the podcast. So the first one, I'm curious to what you think on this is uh, myth number one is you need a lot of money to start investing. This one drives me crazy. So crazy. I think it doesn't matter if you've saved your first $25. I mean, that's the first $25 that you are no longer living paycheck to paycheck. You've saved it. Or it's the first $1,000 or $10,000 or whatever. You worked your butt off to save that. Absolutely. You ab- Yeah, exactly. You absolutely worked your butt off to save that. But why you would just let it sit there and have inflation just slowly eat away at your hard work, it drives me bonkers. It's like we work so hard for our money and then we just like forget about it once it hits our bank balance. Yes. And you're like, oh, I see it there. It's probably fine. But that money that you saved on Tuesday is not the same value on Thursday. I mean, it's not that quick. No, exactly. And I think maybe for our listeners here, are you able to share kind of what you mean by eating away at that amount of money uh, with inflation. Okay. So if we get 
um, I don't know how technical we'll get. There is the consumer price index. That's what everybody looks at when they're talking about inflation. What was this? Um, Apple. Apple. Well, this basket of goods. And right. it's not a yeah. real basket of goods. It's a made up sort of um, general basket of goods based on people's purchasing habits and everything like that. So what was this basket of goods worth in the base year? So I don't know. Let's say the year 2000 versus what is it worth in 2019? It's always going to be, well, in Canada, where we live historically, it has been more the farther down you go. So if every day the cost of living, the price of the things that you are buying is going up, then your money sitting in a bank account, not earning interest or earning very little interest, you're losing money. If the price of you existing in society or living your lifestyle is increasing by 2% every year and you're only getting 0.1% on that let's say $10,000 that you worked your ass off to save, you're losing. Yeah, you're losing purchasing power. You In a year, you won't be able to buy the same amount of the basket of goods mm-hmm. if you're not earning any interest. And I think we'll be getting into savings maybe next episode or a few episodes down the, the road. But I mean, investing and saving go hand in hand. And I think it's so mm-hmm. important to bust that myth that you need hundreds of thousands of dollars to invest. And I think maybe... Before the consumer internet, that was the case. You'd have to take all of your money to an investment mm-hmm. advisor and they'd charge a hefty fee. So it probably didn't make sense. But today, I mean, I'm not sure what you use to invest, but I use everything from mutual funds with my uh, bank, Tangerine, to high interest GICs with EQ Bank and uh, ETFs with both Wealth Simple and Quest Trade. So really, you don't need you know, tens of thousands of dollars to start investing. I think in some of those situations, you can start with $25. Yeah. Yeah. And I think since the rise of, um, you know, the, the new technologies that have come around, it's not as though you're going to the bank with your bond and yeah. <laughs> ripping off these pieces of paper to um, show that you're earning and to get paid and, and to earn money on your investment, right? Like everything is so quick these days that I don't think it matters necessarily what platform you're using. I think no matter where you're at, everybody's getting on board with this. Everybody has a low cost solution for people to get started um, regardless of what their risk tolerance is and regardless of how much money they've already saved up. Let's dive into myth number two. This myth is around paying down debt. And what I've come across is under all circumstances, you should only focus on paying down your debt and not doing anything else with your money. So I'm curious as to what you think about that. I'm so opinionated about these myths. I think that's just silly. That is just silly. So I don't know why you got into debt. At this point, it doesn't matter. You want to get yourself out of debt? Great. I'm all for it. Um, What happens if you're putting every single available dollar that you have, like not your rent, not your food, every single dollar is going down to paying down debt? And then something happens. Your car breaks down. Um, Or, you know, something's not really an emergency. It's not part of your, what people would think about an emergency fund. But it's like, you have to pay now. $1,000 or $2,000 or $5,000 for something today. 
A great example have, of that is uh, going to weddings. Those come up all the yes. time. I was going to bring up the wedding thing because they do happen all the time. It's expensive. Yeah, it's expensive. That's not like a $100 commitment. So now you've got this and you're paying down your debt. Um, so what are you going to do? You're going to put that on your credit card. And you're 100% gonna perpetuating your then your debt and maybe yeah. you're even taking on higher interest debt. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's not getting you out of the cycle. It's perfectly fine if you want to say of my um, not necessarily disposable income because I think at that point if you have high levels of debt nothing feels disposable to you but of the income that you don't need to survive if you want to put 70% of it if that's your comfort zone if you want to put 70% of that extra that you have towards debt repayment that might work for you but you need to have something in the savings category absolutely and I think for most of our listeners we would suggest, you know, trying to focus on high interest debt so that you can pay that off as quickly as possible. But that being said, when you ultimately end up paying off all your debt and you have nothing in your bank account to show for it, you have a net worth of zero dollars, that's not going to feel very good either. So I think there is a balance that needs to be struck and, you know, starting to build a little bit of an emergency fund or mm-hmm. even starting to invest and save for the long term, even if it is maybe only a small percentage of that disposable income is really going to set you up for that financial success down mm-hmm. the road. And I think that many people forget that because, I mean, debt, I guess, contrary to what we've just said about debt being normal, debt also does get a pretty bad stigma. Yeah. Well, and I think, so I think two things, like I think it becomes normalized. You're like, oh, if I want to buy a house or go on vacation, I have to go into debt. Yeah. Um, For some people that may 100% be the case. If you get into a lot of it, I think there's a lot of shame associated with that Agreed, too. yeah. Um, which sucks. I, there's so much in the psychology of money that I hope we talk about in oh, later episodes. Oh, for sure. Well, but, but yeah, there. I think there's a lot of shame associated definitely with debt. And so people do try and get out of it as as fast as possible. But another thing to think about is if you're constantly just focusing on one area of your life and throwing everything mm-hmm. into it, because there is no balance, at some point you're going to snap yeah. and you're going to go to the mall and completely impulse buy thousands of dollars of clothing or drop you know, money on a vacation that you don't have. And it's going to be pretty extra because you are feeling like you haven't had anything for so long and so you kind of go back the other way exactly yeah I I think that can totally happen and I think a lot of these um all or nothing advice pieces or myth pieces it it doesn't ever make sense to me because how is that setting you up for good financial health and I think it can be dangerous too I think we mentioned at the beginning that if something happens you know, you're going to be in a worse financial situation. And so really having that security net set up of an emergency fund or some savings Mm -hmm. is going to make you sleep better at night too. If you're not like dollar by dollar, paycheck to paycheck, stressed out every single night because you're throwing everything at the debt you accumulated, Mm -hmm. I think you're going to lower your stress levels. And so I think it is also important to understand and to think about how making a decision like that could affect your mental health, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. I really like that. All right. Myth number three is an interesting one and I think is so common in Canadian culture. 
the myth is that you need to own a home and renting is a waste of money. And before I turn it over to Tara, I have to preface with my husband and I did just buy a home begrudgingly. Uh, we probably would have stayed renters for the rest of our lives if we, if we could have. But uh, curious to know what you think on this topic. Well, I, I think we were the same way. I mean, um, okay. We bought our first property, maybe not thinking about it as much as we should have. Um, that being said, it was the type of property that uh, rent versus buy wasn't that big of a discrepancy. Um, and then, yeah, second time we bought, we were felt kind of pushed into it due to family situations. Like I was pregnant. Um, it's super difficult to find a rental with a family. Especially in Alberta. Insane. And like I could go on like a nine hour rant about this. And maybe I'll save all of it for a different episode. But that is one of the reasons we started looking at purchasing is unfortunately, Alberta has legislation that says you are allowed to not have children in condo buildings. Mm -hmm. And I know that the NDP did repeal this, but they did allow a 15-year grandfathering rule. So it's, you know, by the time we plan on having kids, God, I hope it's been 15 years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it's not going to help our generation. No, not at all. But it's crazy that, yeah, I understand maybe the pets side of things, but, you know, if I had gotten pregnant living in the condo we were living in, I would have nine months to leave mm-hmm. and probably not even nine months because you're not going to, you don't find out for a little mm-hmm. while is my understanding. Yeah. And also you're probably not moving when you're nine months pregnant. So you really only I have a couple, yeah. yeah, you really only have a couple months to find something. Yeah. It's stressful. It's horribly stressful. It puts you in the worst kind of financial decision-making mentality of, um, you know, undue pressure. And it's, um, it becomes emotional, I think. It does become emotional. It becomes so emotional. Um, but in terms of renting is a waste of money, renting is not a waste of money. It's all about, you know, proportion to your income, what's important to you, where you live, you know, city, town, where you work. Um, huge. Never a waste of money. Um, more and more these days, it's kind of looking like a win. I wish we could have rented for longer. Um, i my ideal situation would have been able to, been, having been able to find uh, a long-term single-family lease. If anybody wants to start doing that here in Alberta, I, w- I would absolutely be on board for that. Please do. Absolutely. Five-year, ten-year leases. Let's go. Be, especially because when you have a kid, you know, you want to stay living in the same area mm-hmm. because they start to go to school and make friends. And so to yeah. be stressed out about a one-year lease coming up and your landlord kicking you out, I think causes probably more of a negative impact when you do have kids. Like, oh yeah, you know, when you're two adults living together, it's kind of like, well, whatever. But when there's kids involved, it's like, what about their friends? And what about the school they go to and the activities in that community? And so, yeah, I would love to see more long-term leases. And I would love to see that that legislation get repealed a lot faster but unfortunately I am not the person that gets to make that decision not yet yeah exactly (laughs) um yeah another piece of the the renting versus buying I think is around the financial piece of earning that equity and people always say you know renting's a waste of money because at least when you're buying you're not paying someone else's mortgage and 
there's an equity piece to that. So how would you combat that when you're talking to individuals? There is. Sure. Sure. There is. It's um, it's an asset that historically has appreciated. Slowly, I might add. It's about 2% per year. <laughs> At a rate. <laughs> that yeah. Maybe if you took, like, let's, let's think about it. Let's say you have a... Um, I don't know what's a conservative down payment these days. Thirty thousand, not even fifty. Well, yes, sixty. You have to have five percent down. So you have to bare minimum yeah. have five percent. I would not recommend that. Me neither. Bare minimum five percent down, like that's huge. So let's say you save up or you take out a loan to get your five percent, and um, let's let's just say it's thirty thousand dollars. I'd like. Do you really think that that thirty thousand dollars? is going to appreciate at the same rate in in a house that could be very hard to sell, that you have to upkeep, that you have to deal with leaks and replacing the roof and the windows and, I don't know, things nesting in your attic potentially. I, I mean, just from the headache standpoint, like, that doesn't seem worth it. And that's not even considering things like property taxes oh, yeah. or utilities. I mean, in our condo, we were so lucky. We only had to pay our electricity. Mm-hmm. Honestly, our cost of living was so low. And I mean, now our our mortgage is around the same as what our rent was, but mm-hmm. we do have to pay for all of our utilities, condo yeah. fees, property taxes. Again, like a huge little, down payment. Exactly. Little things you don't think of. Like we had to buy a hose for our plants because yeah. like, you need to have a hose apparently when you live in a house. Yeah. And I don't think people necessarily think about that as well. If you don't have 20% down, you are paying CMHC, which can basically erode your equity at the beginning. And we've seen here in Alberta with the past oil recession, Mm -hmm. houses drop significantly in value Mm -hmm. and people are underwater on their homes. Like it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. If you buy at the wrong time, it, it can be so detrimental to your financial health and well-being and cash flow too. Oh, who wants to be house poor? Yeah, it's um, it's not great. It, I feel like it's not um, renting is definitely not a waste of money. Um, I feel like housing in our particular city, in our particular province, it feels like something that's almost forced upon us. For sure. If we want to have little tiny, I don't know, future taxpayers. Yeah. Someone once referred to children as. Future ta- little tiny future taxpayers. <laughs> I love it. And one of the most interesting books I actually read was called The Wealthy Renter by Alex Avery. And he actually makes an argument for why renting makes sense. And I think one of the big things that you have to look at when you're looking at the, the total cost of ownership is realistically, you're either paying for a place to live by, by renting mm-hmm. or you're paying to borrow money mm-hmm. to buy a house. So at the end of the day, you're paying for a place to live. It's just yep. with a mortgage, there's one extra step. Yeah. And that's, and that's, I think how my husband and I look at it now, like this is the cost of, um, living in the neighborhood that we want to live in with the long-term security that we want to have, um, in terms of schools and lifestyle and all of that kind of thing. Um, we didn't see it in the rental market. That being said, we didn't necessarily see it in the buyer's market either. We were, we could have gone either way. Yeah, I think for us, we did look. It took us over a year to find the place we live in now, which is where we're recording this. Mm-hmm. But 
it was so challenging when we started to look at some of those rental properties that had three bedrooms and were in the inner city. They were, you know, over $3,000 a month, which it actually started to make financial sense the other way. Yes. Yeah. And that's what we found too. For, for what we wanted, um, we, we couldn't find it in a rental. We couldn't find it in a rental at that price. It was super unfortunate. Um, and it took us, we moved down here, what, 2015? I think and so, we yeah. bought, so a year, because we bought yeah. in 2016. Well, you kind of look on and off and then, you know, you become a little bit more serious. But I think, you know, to anyone that is out there renting and maybe, I know it's always the boomers, but then the them being the boomers or, you know, coworkers or siblings or parents or grandparents telling you that you really should purchase, I think... Try to be as confident as you can in, in holding your ground. Uh, mm-hmm. I know our families were like, buy a place when we moved down in 2014. Mm-hmm. And that was right before oil crashed. And yeah. had we have purchased something when we moved down, also we could not have afforded it. Um, I think it would have been so bad for our financial yeah. health, for yeah. sure. And it's such – if you look at it in terms of um, – being able to liquidate that asset or um, sell it for whatever reason, it's so unique. And like, challenging. And challenging and specific. Um, it's more similar to me in my frame of mind as purchasing a car than it is to purchasing an investment. I definitely do not look at it as our mortgage as an investment. For sure. I mean, you can't sell a wall in your house if you lose your job. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, even even if you are in like a great market, you you need to find the right buyer. And, and then you thing. have to still find a place to live. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, and people always bring up um, other cities, other markets um, when we have these conversations. But it doesn't really matter if you, you had high uh, value in your asset appreciated substantially in Vancouver, if you're still living in Vancouver. Absolutely. And if you're working in Vancouver, you still have to live in Vancouver. I mean, yeah. obviously, as we continue to globalize, maybe maybe that will change and it will make more sense for us to all move out to small towns. But as it stands right now, I think with how our jobs are set up, it, it makes no financial sense and no sense economically to, to move to a small town and maybe you're commuting an hour and a half each way then. All right. So our last financial myth of this episode is hits pretty close to home. I did used to be a tax specialist, so I, of course, had to include something from a tax perspective. But I have heard so many people that say when they make more money and they get pushed into another, the next highest tax bracket, that they're actually going to end up making less money overall because they're being taxed at a higher rate. Incorrect. (laughs) Oh, I know. It drives me bonkers for sure. But I thought we needed to address that to anyone who thinks that, you know, earning more money is going to put them in a negative financial situation. I never know how to address that in a, in still keep my female niceness that I'm meant to have. Um, Yeah, because I, I just, it's not all of your money. It's not, they're not like, whoop. You got $1 more. Now all of your money is being taxed at the highest level. That's not how these things work. So let's maybe take a step back and talk about the different tax brackets here. Sure. In, I guess, Canada and Alberta and how 
we are taxed um, marginally. You're taxed on an amount at a specific percentage, maybe that's 15%, up into a certain dollar. And then mm. any money you earn over that amount then gets taxed in the next bracket. So if mm. the first bracket is $40,000, you know, at 15%, and these are very rough numbers because I cannot remember them off the top of my head, mm. but, you know, you'll be taxed 15% on that $40,000. And then if you made another $10,000 on top of that, only that $10,000 is going to be taxed in the next highest bracket. So it does yeah. become kind of an average rate yeah. over the course of, I guess, your year of earning income. Yeah, and here here's my thoughts on the tax bracket because it always seems to be people in kind of that, uh, what people love to call the middle class. And I feel like both of us are probably in that demographic. Yeah, probably, for sure. If somebody wanted to like peg us in. Um but there is a huge difference between grossing $200,000 and being at the highest tax bracket and grossing $2 million and being at the highest tax bracket. For sure. Like why, why aren't the tax brackets spread out a little bit? That's what I don't understand because it's, it all works the same way for anyone's income as long as they're making employment income. Yep. It's all working the same way. So on your T4, if you have 200000 you're being taxed at the same marginal rates as somebody who is making $2 million. Yeah, it's actually kind of crazy when you think about it like that. And I, I do think in Alberta, the, the brackets are a little higher. Like I think the top one is like $300,000. Okay. But again, it's not that federally. And mm -hmm. you're right. The ultra wealthy are still being taxed the same marginal tax rate mm -hmm. as people who are in the middle class. Cause I guess, yeah, let's be honest. Like a hundred thousand dollars isn't very much these days. Like no. for a household, like there's. Yeah. If that's your, if that's your gross household that no. Yeah. That's not yeah. that much. And so when we're looking at, you know, making the difference between making a hundred thousand and three hundred thousand dollars actually isn't that much when you compare it to making, like you said, two or $3 million. Mm -hmm. And I think you need to make close to $2 million to actually get an average tax rate of 50%. So I know that people always say like, oh, I'm taxed 50% of my income. And, and you are not. Like, you are not <laughs> taxed 50% of your income. But You might be taxed 50% on $1 of your income. For sure. If we look at it. Yeah. And I think that that's a great calculation to know is what's your average tax rate. Because I think it's a lot lower than people would expect. Yeah. And when you think about all the services that were provided, it kind of makes sense that you'd have to pay yeah. into these things. Like, I mean, I really enjoy roads and healthcare. I don't yeah. know about you, but. Well, I do too. I think yeah, that's, I a, like that's an important myth to bust is you got to hustle. You got to earn as much money as you can and you're not going to be taxed to death or you're not going to all of a sudden when you make $100,000, 50% of that is gone and you're in a worse off financial position than you would if you made $80,000. That just doesn't make sense. No. no, it's, yeah, it's only that extra little bit. Yeah. Well, thanks for chatting with me today about uh, money myths and why money is taboo. I wanted to close with your pink tax rebate, which is a piece of financial information and a a call to action that you can do in the next week that will help propel you forward financially. And this week, Tara and I are hoping that you have a conversation about money with 
someone in your life that you haven't had a money conversation with before. And as uncomfortable as it may be, it will ultimately start to really loosen the barriers on the financial conversations in our society today. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave a five-star review. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to share your money story by using the hashtag FemFinances. <laughs>